Hi, and welcome to the Arana Hills Church of Christ podcast. We hope this message brings you closer to knowing God, finding freedom in Him, and understanding what He has in store for you and your community. To learn more about Arana Hills Church of Christ, head to aranahills.church. We hope you enjoy this message. Thank you for being here tonight. If you're the type that likes, tough, if you're the type that likes following an actual Bible, Acts chapter 8, I'm going to get there in just a second. Um, it's so good to spend the evening with you. You know, last time I was here was the last night before I got shut down, as with everybody else, with the whole COVID thing, right? So, so, so I, 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 we're going to trust that that doesn't happen again, right? But this is, the last time I was here, that's what happened the next day, actually. And so um, it's, it's good to be back here uh, with you. And we're, we're back, in, and look at this building. What a great job whoever did all this was. Man, come on, you guys should be proud of yourself. I'd also like to say hello to the online Audience, people who are joining us um, live via the internet, we love you, and thank you so much for letting me be a part of your evening. Anytime I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller, right? And so if we do that tonight and you're blessed, um, then that's what we're shooting for. We hope you're inspired to say yes to the infinite possibilities God has for us to bring heaven here now today. So um, immediately after um, this, we have a resource table set up. Um, we only have uh, all of our new stuff from the year is out there. So I have a, a, a series I did on the book of Revelation. Uh, the reason is because I was so embarrassed by what Christians were saying on the internet about that book. So I said, oh, we got to do something better, right? And so we put that out there. Uh, that's 12 parts in audio, 10 in video. We also have a series on faith that I wrote in November, hand on heart, last November, preparing for this year. Faith and uncertainty, and um, it just happened to be perfect. So that's out there as well. Also, during the COVID season, um, pastors from all over the place were asking me to be in their online platforms. And so we ended up doing a lot of dialogue and interview style about all kinds of topics. And by the time we were done, we had like 750 minutes of material. And so what we did is we copied and pasted and edited and did it according to topic, and it's out there. So uh, you could pick that up, and then you can look through the 35 topics or whatever it is, and you say, oh, we, I want to hear, hear what we're saying about that. And so, the, I mean, these are guys like um, um, Dustin Bell and Nathan Bean and Rob Buckingham and Chris Mulhair, some really, really intelligent people, um, and we were talking through some pretty big issues. So if you, um, if you feel like you'd be edified by that, that's out there. We, uh, as always, 100% of what we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. That's, been, that's actually been the biggest stressor of the whole COVID thing for me was um, our commitment um, to, our, to our children's home that looks after mentally handicapped kids um, and our commitment to the Cape Town thing that we use to get people out of sex trafficking. We make that commitment um, in January. And then, and then all of a sudden, I couldn't set up a table. And so, but I'm happy to report that yes, because of the grace of God, we have not missed one commitment to them yet. And that's been a really, really good thing. And so you can, um, you can pick some of those things up out there. So before we get to the scripture, I want to talk to you about the topic tonight. Now, this is Wednesday night, and you're in church, which means I'm feeling no, absolutely no pressure to be an evangelist. I'm talking to church leaders, okay? And I want to talk to you about some language that, it, that I think the church not only, not only can adopt, I think we must adopt that to be a part of what God is up to in the next season as we reimagine. What's happening all over the place is church leaders are reimagining what it might be to be a Christ-centered community. We're reimagining, we're looking at parables like new wine, old wine skins, things like this. And of course, 
Of course, the point of that passage at its most elemental level is when God is up to something new, it requires a new container to hold it or the new thing will burst the, new, the old container open, right? The idea is, is that if we try to contain the new thing God is up to in an old container, it's not that the old was bad. It just can't hold everything God's up to in the new, right? And so we have to talk about language around that. Now, let me open this, this talk tonight with tell, by telling you a story. And uh, this story has really helped me put some language around what, what we're going to speak about, right? So this is a story, it's a true story, about an American who wanted to come to Australia back in the late 80s. Now, to understand this story, you have to understand that Americans are enamored with Australian culture. We love it, right? You go to America, just talking an Aussie accent, people are interested, right? You could be like a total plonker, and if you're talking in an Aussie accent, we want to know your story, right? We want to know what's going on. The reason Americans love Australian culture is because of Crocodile Dundee, and there is a steakhouse in America called Outback Steakhouse, and what they did was is they made millions of dollars just naming their food after Australian cities. That's what they did. The Rockhampton ribeye, the Alice Springs chicken. They tell people that Aborigines invented a way to, to flour an onion and fry it. I'm almost positive that is not true, but that's part of the storyline out But because of those two things, Americans love Australian culture. And any time an American comes to Australia for the first time, they want to do one thing. They want to see the outback. Now, I've been coming to Australia for 18 years. Trust me, I try to explain to them, you don't want to see the outback, right? It, it, there's nothing there. Here's all you do. Fly to Mount Isa, drive 10 minutes out of town. That it, there, there you are. That's it. For thousands of miles, that's all the outback is. But Americans, they have to do it the first time. And, and Americans are enamored with the sheer size of things in the outback. We don't have a file folder for properties that big. Like my pastor is an old cattleman, and his, his cattle property when he was growing up was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. His nearest neighbor was four hours drive away or something, right? We don't, to, to a 70 mile long by 30 mile wide piece of property to an American, that's like the state of Connecticut. We don't understand that kind of size of things. And so this American came and went out into the outback and was observing how big the thing was. And he couldn't get his head around why you don't fence up your whole property, right? Because, and of course, the answer to that is you can't put a fence around 70, you can't put a fence around the state of Connecticut. It's, it's, too, it's, it's too costly. You, you'd have to get an act of Congress to, you know, build a wall to do that, right? You can't, you, you can't, you can't do that sort of thing. And so the American asked the farmer, how do you keep your cows from wandering off if you don't have a fence to keep them in. And this was the farmer's answer back in the 80s. He said, what you do is you have a surveyor come and you drill wells down the center of your property, then at strategic points in the property. And he said, what happens is, is if your water source is in the center of the property, the cow won't vary too far from the water source or it knows it will die. And he said, son, if you've got proper wells, you don't need fences. Now, that will preach. Because, which leads me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, and I would say all four Gospels, are transitional books. They're transitioning the world from a fence-based ministry 
to a well-based ministry. A fence-based ministry is concerned with who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's clean, who's unclean. And in the Old Testament, there were 613 fences. Jesus had two fence posts. But by the, by the middle of the book of Acts, they had dumbed it down to four fences, blood, meat sacrificed to idols, strangled animals, and sexual immorality. So they went from 613 fences to a well-based ministry. They, and I want to put some language around what that means. Because for us, for Ronna Hills Church of Christ, to move into the next thing God is up to in our world, we have to transition from being ultimately obsessed with fences, who's in, who's out, who's right, who's right, who, who's wrong, who's clean, who's unclean, to a well-based ministry. Because the truth of it is, is that if we have a proper well, we don't need all those fences. Now, in the middle of this, there is a story in the book of Acts. Now, let me see if I can summarize the book of Acts in 30 seconds, okay? There's a group of people who had a massive encounter with Jesus and then a massive encounter with the Holy Spirit, and then they started doing amazing things. And then they got persecuted for doing the amazing things because they weren't supposed to be the ones used to do the amazing things. And then they did more amazing things, and then they got persecuted for doing the amazing things. And then they did more amazing things, and they got persecuted for doing the amazing things. And then a guy named Stephen gets killed. And then they still do amazing things and get persecuted for doing the amazing things. Then the guy leading the persecution has a radical encounter with Christ, and then he starts doing amazing things. And then he gets persecuted for doing amazing things. And here's why. Because they weren't supposed to be the people used by God to do the amazing things. It didn't fit all the fences. And so the book of Acts is what it looks like to move from a fence-based ministry to a well-based ministry. And even when I say it like that, something inside of you goes, yes, yes, amen. We need, we need to be less concerned with fences and more concerned with wells. Absolutely. But if we don't have language for this, it's just a platitude. So my goal tonight is to give us language for what this might look like. So there's an encounter with a guy named Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. It's a strange encounter. I'd like to read it to you tonight and just sort of follow along. Here's what it says. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south of the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. I've been there. It's absolutely a desert place. I've actually been to this exact place where this guy was baptized. And he rose and went. And there there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. This story is so strange, it's beyond words. Let's keep going. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join him on his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and he asked, do you even understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, now look how teachable this guy is. He's like, look, I, I've got my ideas and I'm pretty compelled, but tell me, T tell me about it, right? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Keep going. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter and like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? I want to point out that the eunuch's understanding of this stuff was very elemental at best right? Very prime. It's like, wait a minute. He doesn't even understand if Isaiah is speaking 
of himself or somebody else. This is a pretty basic understanding, but he's really compelled. Now, now watch what happens. Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. In other words, Philip was willing to meet the eunuch where he thought God was. In other words, if your understanding of God is in Isaiah 53, fine, that's where I'm, we'll start there and go forward. There's a humility in this. And, and the Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture, and, and he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's some water. What prevents me from getting baptized? In other words, I'd like to join your movement. Um, is anything stopping me from getting baptized? And, and, he, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Keep going. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. What a quick, weird encounter. Like Philip doesn't take the time to explain end times to the eunuch. He doesn't, he doesn't work through whether he reads Genesis 6 literally or poetically. So it seems like the things that we use as fences actually don't matter as much. It seems like this guy gets an encounter with Christ, Philip baptizes him, and then the spirit of God's like, yeah, that's enough. That's, that's, that's a good enough start. And the Spirit of the Lord carried away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, this is a strange story. Like, Jesus told them that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and in Acts chapter 8, they're still in Jerusalem until such a heavy persecution brought on by the murder of a guy named Stephen, starts leading them out to places like Samaria. People start offering them money to, to, for, the, for the gift of the Spirit. And then there's this weird encounter for the Philly, with, the Phil, with the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I read this passage, and I have questions, right? Now, if you read that passage with me and were paying attention, and you don't have questions, you're not paying attention, right? So I, I want to sh share with you my questions. And, and next slide. These are the questions I asked myself when, when I read this passage. One, is there too much information in this passage? Like, does Luke really need to include the fact this guy's a eunuch? And if you're the Ethiopian eunuch, do you actually want the whole world knowing you're a eunuch? Like, I could picture the Ethiopian today confronting Luke. Like, Luke, what, really, really, you knew Shane Willer was going to read that one day. He can't read over that. He's got to point that out. The whole world knows I'm a eunuch. Like, why not the Ethiopian? Or why not bury the Ethiopian? right? No, no, Ethiopian eunuch. That's too much information. I mean, could, would you agree with me that, that some information is best left on the down low, right? right? We don't really need to know that this guy's missing his anatomy, right? The, the second question I have is, why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem? Here's what's happening in this story. An Ethiopian guy who's missing his anatomy rides a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. That is far, why would he do that? That makes no sense. My third question is, why is he clutching the scroll of Isaiah? Like out of all the scriptures he could be interested in, he's clutching an odd scroll written by a prophet to people who were enslaved in Babylon, calling out abuses of power towards the poor, and he is clutching this scroll. So much so that he's like, please, would anybody tell me what this guy's talking about? And more importantly, can someone explain to me who this guy's talking about? Because I'm interested. Well, what I'm interested in is why he's interested. Why is he riding a horse to Jerusalem? Why is he missing part of his anatomy? Why is that included in the story? 
Why is he clutching the prophet Isaiah? Which leads me to this question. How does the good news apply to an Ethiopian who's missing his anatomy? I want to know that. The next question I want to know, next slide, is, is there any reason why I can't be baptized? Like, why would the Ethiopian go, is, would you object to me being baptized? Why would he have thought it was possible? And why is this question important to Philip? My last question is, is are we a fence-based ministry or a well-based church? And so I want to I examine these things and give language around this stuff. See, it seems like an inconsequential detail. By the way, the Ethiopian eunuch. But here's what we got to understand. We've got to understand that there was a reason he can't be baptized. First, he's a foreigner. Second, he's a eunuch. Now, where do I get this from? Hold your breath. The Bible, okay? In Deuteronomy 23, it says something completely awful when it comes to this guy. Let me, let me just read it to you. This is Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, 2, and 3. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting, because that's better, right? In other, words, in other words, whether it was your fault or whether four guys held you down and cut it off, it doesn't matter, right? Whether it was your choice or not, if you're a eunuch, you have a problem, right? No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter into the assembly of the Lord. Now, would you agree with me that if four guys held you down and crushed your testicles, your last concern is really, can I go to church still? Right, right, right. But, but nonetheless, the idea is that no eunuch will be welcomed by God. And, and then it doesn't stop there. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of their descendants may enter into the assembly, Lord, not even in 10 generations time. Now I'm 44, I was born in 1976. I have in my lifetime heard a youth pastor use that verse to motivate teenagers not to have premarital sex. And here was his logic. You don't wanna have premarital sex because if you mess up and get pregnant, that child can never go to heaven, nor your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren for 10 generations. Now, first of all, that is hermeneutical nonsense. That's first. Second, what are you talking about? Third, those teenagers eventually left the church. And then people said, oh, see, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't reject Jesus. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them by that guy, right? But it keeps going, watch this. And no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. See, Jesus sort of throws himself in the face of two of these three fences. Like Jesus, if you check his genealogy, was 128th Moabite. In other words, no Moabites welcomed by God. If you check my genealogy, I, I am, right? There was, a, there was some questionable circumstances around Jesus's birth, right? Jesus like, listen, I'm here now. So for this Ethiopian eunuch, there was a Bible verse that says no eunuch will be welcomed by God, which leads to this question. Why then is he clutching Isaiah? The scroll from Isaiah out of all of the scriptures, why is he clutching the scroll from Isaiah? Maybe it's because of this. Let me read you the scroll that he was clutching. Let me read from it. Here it comes. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. So here's a foreigner and Isaiah saying, let no foreigner say God will exclude you. And it doesn't stop there. Watch what it says. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, 
who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and the daughters. Oh my goodness. And I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants to, and all who keep my Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted. What? On my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Can you imagine the Q&A on that one? What if they're Moabite? What if they're Ammonite? What, what if they're Amalekites? Isaiah is in tune with this new thing God is doing, and the old container cannot contain it. It's got to move forward. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And here's, can you see why this Ethiopian eunuch is clutching this scroll in particular? Can you see why he's going, hey, who's this guy talking about? This guy is talking about a God willing to suffer with humanity and he welcomes foreigners and eunuchs. And newsflash, I'm a foreigner and I'm a eunuch. So whatever God is willing to accept me, can you explain to me the grace that allows me to connect with him? And here's why this is so important for us. Because here's the problem, right? If you're a self-righteous jerk, right? There's nothing I can say to help. But here's the truth. Most of us aren't that. And here's what happens with good-hearted people. Good-hearted people struggle at times with the tension between taking the Bible seriously, which we should do, and our call to love somebody. And here's what it looks like. Where does my call to take the Holy Scripture seriously violate my call to love them? And where does my call to love them violate my call to take the Holy Scripture seriously? Like, let me give you an example. There's something about that person that the Bible clearly says is not good. And so I know I'm called to love that person, but where does my call to love them violate my call to take that seriously? And where does my call to take that seriously violate my call to love them? And what do I do and how do I navigate this? And if you've never struggled with that tension, you might need some more friends right? Because all of us at times struggle with, hang on, where does my call to love you violate the fact that the Bible clearly says there's something about you that is not the best? In this case, the Bible clearly says being a eunuch is not the best way to go in life, right? And I think all the guys in the room can give me a big old hearty amen. Yes, amen, amen, amen. We don't want to be emasculated by crushing or cutting for that matter, right? It's not the best way to go, right? But what do you do when, and think about, think about Philip here. Philip grew up in an orthodox situation. He's got to wrestle with how seriously do I take Deuteronomy 23? How do I balance that against Isaiah 56? And yet I have a human being who is obviously thirsting for the things of God right in front of me. What, how do I do that? How do I navigate that? And if you're a good-hearted person, I think I have one way to help us with that. The church of Jesus Christ should always be people endeavoring to fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about one verse in it. And if we are people who fulfill scripture, we can do that by simply doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if we do that, 
then we can do something more profound than being right about one verse. We can fulfill scripture. And here's what Philip does. Philip chooses to fulfill scripture instead of being right about Deuteronomy 23. He sees where Isaiah had a bigger vision of what God is up to. And obviously the final revelation of God in the risen Christ was even nicer than that. Now, anytime you open a Bible, you wanna ask two questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? That is my best effort in explaining what happened in this story. Now I want to endeavor to put language around what that means for building a church in Arana Hills in 2020 and reimagining what it means to be a Christ-centered community. Let's, let's explore this, next slide. So the characters in this story are an Ethiopian eunuch, a God-fearer. He would have been disqualified according to the Old Testament. He was willing to walk days to find the truth. Then you have Philip. He was one of the original 12. He was from a devoutly orthodox village called Bethsaida and would have lived by 613 fences his whole life. You know the whole thing, that's just not what I was always taught, right? That's, Philip could have said, wait a minute, I was taught my whole life eunuchs aren't welcome. And he's being confronted by a better story. And there's some serious fruit on this too. Next slide. So today in Ethiopia, 65% of Ethiopia identifies as Christians. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. They, they don't move there. The Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to this eunuch. In other words, you never know where being someone willing to take the risk and fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse and being kind over being right and understanding that God loves people more than the rules. You never know where one act of that compassion changes the course of an entire nation 2,000 years later. Let's say it this way, next slide. An entire book, the book of Acts, was about being surprised by how generous God is with people who are thirsty instead of worrying about where are they worthy. Like the whole book of Acts. Remember in, in Acts 4, it's like, oh, we were surprised because they were normal, ordinary, uneducated people being used by God. Why were they surprised? Because that's not how it's supposed to happen. You have uncircumcised Gentiles being filled with the Holy Spirit. And remember, that even surprised Peter who walked with Jesus for three years. The problem was Jesus, uh, Peter was preaching the sermon when it happened. Remember it says, as Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit filled those he was talking to, even though they were Gentiles. And the religious leaders were like, Peter, explain yourself. God doesn't do that. And remember Peter's response? He's like, I agree. I, I, I'm with you. I was just as shocked as you. <laughs> I'm actually still trying to work it out. But here's all I know is if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, just like he did us, who am I to argue with this new thing God's up to? Even if it doesn't fit how we were taught our whole life, God is obviously up to something different. The book of Acts is a whole book about people being surprised by this new thing God is doing and the old container can't hold it. It can't be contained to Jerusalem or even Judea or Samaria. It's going worldwide and there's nothing people can do to stop it, right? This was good news. Now, what does this mean for us? Next slide. Jesus doesn't ask, are you worthy? Jesus seems to be more concerned with, are you thirsty? Let's say it this way. Offense-based ministry is focused on, are you worthy? Are you in, are you out? Are you right, are you wrong? Are you clean, are you unclean? A well-based ministry seems to ask a different question. It seems to ask the question, are you thirsty? Do you want it? Do you desire it? In other words, as the leaders of Arana Hills Church of Christ, here's what you want in the next season. 
once we're back, once we're able to get back to normal and build our churches like we always have, okay? Once we're back to that, what if we shifted our focus from have you done our ritual to be worthy to are you thirsty? Do you want it? See, I would rather have I, I would rather have a church full of thirsty people than a whole room of Christians who aren't teachable, right? That would be horrible. So let's put some language around thirst. What does it mean to be thirsty? All right, let's define it this way. A lack of thirst equals a lack of teachability. So thirst equals teachability. A lack of thirst means we've lost our teachability. And I feel positive. I'm pretty good friends with your pastor. So I feel pretty positive that I, that I can say this uh, for him and me and him are sympathetical on this. We would rather have 40 agnostic, curious, authentic, kind, thirsty, passionate people who are earnestly and in a pliable way being teachable and seeking the truth than we would want a church of 3,000 unteachable Christians. A, a, a church of 3,000 people who are all about, we believe the right things, but if we haven't thought of it, don't mention it because it can't be true. Like that would be horrible. A church that honors thirst, honors teachability. And it sort of says, wait, but you can't be unteachable. The root word disciple in, in, in Hebrew is just a student. It's someone who is teachable. I would add to that, humble. A, a, a thirsty person is humble. A thirsty person is humble enough to be teachable. A thirsty person is humble enough to go, wait a minute, where are my liberties bothering other people? right? There's a whole chapter in the New Testament in Romans 14 about what do you do when you're free to behave a certain way, but it's bothering a whole bunch of people. What do you do? And Paul says, listen, if you're free to eat food sacrificed to idols, but it makes somebody else stumble, don't, you don't have to stop eating food sacrificed to idols, but you don't have to do it in front of the people that it bothers. In other words, part of being a Christ-centered community is being teachable and being humble enough not to lord our liberties over other people, but to submit our liberty to the higher ethic of love because love is always the highest ethic. A, a thirsty ministry is, is, is one that, that is, a lack of thirst equals a lack of responsibility. See, even in Genesis, before sin entered the picture, human beings interpreted some of their meaning and purpose in life by taking responsibility for their world. So the opposite of that is blaming. In other words, if we get into a pattern of blaming someone else for why we are the way we are, it's my father that ate sour grapes. It's someone else's fault. It's my dad, it's my mom. If you just knew how I grew up, as soon as we get into a pattern of blaming, we start to diminish our purpose. A thirsty ministry, a well-based ministry is one that is full of teachability, humility, responsibility, and, and, and third, lack of thirst equals ambivalence. It's, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. A, a, a thirsty ministry is, is one that's teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about what we could do in our world, bringing heaven to every place we see hell here. A thirsty ministry is one that isn't, isn't just content to sit on our butt and wait to go to heaven when we die. A thirsty ministry is one that wakes up every day saying yes to the infinite possibilities God might have for us here, now, today. See, what we don't want is a lack of thirst, a lack of teachability, a lack of humility, a lack of responsibility, and, 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 and the presence of ambivalence. We don't want any of that. What we want is we want a well-based ministry. A well-based ministry is more concerned with are you thirsty instead of are you worthy. Let's put some more language around this. Next slide. So the overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. If there's a well-stocked well, you don't need the fences to quote the Australian farmer. Son, 
if you've got a proper will, you don't need fences. See, there were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. Acts 15 has four. Food sacrifice to idols, blood, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. Acts was showing us what, what focusing on thirst could do. Let, let's say it this way. Are we gravitating to the center regardless of the fencing? That's a good question. Like for the people in this room right now, and don't answer me out loud, I just want you to wrestle with this. Are we passionately gravitating to the center? What does that mean? We're teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate. Are we gravitating to the center? Are we teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate? Are we gravitating to the center regardless of the fence? See, Christianity gets very uncompelling real quick when it becomes about all the no's. And here's the thing. It's not that we don't need the no's. Some, most of those no's are a really good idea. I'll give you an example, right? Thou shalt not kill. That's a really good plan, folks, seriously. If you're struggling not killing someone, I would urge you to keep struggling, right? Don't give in to that, right? right? Thou shalt not kill. A really good no that we should keep. That's a good fence, right? That's a good one. That is a really, really good one. But here's the thing. Here's the problem with that, right? I would bet a pretty good chunk of change that no one in here killed anybody this week. I would also bet it's not because the Bible says don't kill. It's because you're not a killer, right? Like if you've been walking with God for any amount of time and you need the Bible to keep you from killing somebody, we might have missed the point of our encounter with Christ, right? Here's another good abstination. Ready? Here we go. Don't sleep with other people's spouses. It's a good plan. It's a good plan, seriously. And, and, and if you're struggling with that, like if right now your heart's beating really fast, I would urge you to change your life, okay? Don't tell us all about it. Just change your life, right? Right? I, I would bet a pretty good chunk of change that no one in here right now is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse, right? I would also bet that the reason you're not is not because the Bible says. I would bet you're not because you don't want to bring destruction on people you love, right? If you, if you don't see my point, let me say it this way. Take your wife to coffee tonight. Hold her by the hand. Look at her in the eye and say, sweetie, I love you with all my heart. But the only reason I'm not sleeping with other people is because the Bible says, right? See how well that goes, right? There is, there is a more profound way to live, right? Like, remember there's this one time? There was this rich guy. He doesn't name him. It just says a rich guy. And this rich guy says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, I'm missing life. Can you tell me how can, I, can, how can I access eternal life? And remember what Jesus says? He says, keep the commands. In other words, master the nose. And remember that guy's response? He's like, can't be that. Jesus says, how do you know? He says, because I haven't struggled breaking the command since I was a kid. And Jesus goes, really? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I haven't committed adultery. I, I haven't dishonored the Sabbath. I, I haven't killed anybody. Um, I've honored my father and mother. He goes, I've kept the big stuff, you know, but I'm still missing life. And Jesus says, so you've mastered the nose. He says, yes. He goes, then one thing you lack, 
sell what you can and give it to the poor and eternal life can be yours. In other words, Christianity is not simply the art of mastering the nose. Christianity is once the nose become a part of our life, it's the art of saying yes to something. It's like, what am I, it's not just what am I saying no to, it's what am I saying yes to? Am I gravitating to the center regardless of the fence? Like even, even if there was no rule about that, I'm not engaging in that because that behavior brings death. And we can say it this way, are we more focused on direction instead of distance? A well-based ministry cares about direction. A fence-based ministry wants to define how far you are from the well. A well-based ministry says, no, 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 which direction is his shoulders pointing? I, I, I'll give you an example. I, I was doing a, a, a big like um, champion night for a church. It's a huge thing. There's hundreds of people there. And it was everybody that was on team. So everybody that's on volunteer team and the whole church was at this night, I was, I was brought in to motivate them, right? And, and, and part, of, part of the night is they have this testimony time where basically it's you tell a God story and you have to do it in 60 seconds or left, less. And these stories are supposed to motivate people to say, hey, what we're doing matters. Keep going. It's really, really well done because they have this security guard with a stopwatch. If you go over 60 seconds, they just take the mic from you, right? So that no one drones on and on and on, you know? And so remember, I had to preach after this. There were some great stories, right? The second to last story, this guy comes up. It was his 60-second story. And he said, hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. <laughs> right? Because when you want to kill a party, right? And I was like, right? I thought he, I didn't know what he was fixing to say. He said, I'm an atheist. He said, but I was a lonely atheist. And um, some folks told me that you guys would be nice to me, whether I was an atheist or not, it didn't matter. And I gotta be honest, you have been. You've been so kind to me. By my second week here, you asked me to greet on the door and show people where to go to the bathroom and stuff. And he said, you're a church with an atheist door greeter. <laughs> and I was on the front row going, this is amazing, right? And he said, and you guys have been so nice to me. My story is this, because of your kindness, tonight I'm making a decision to step back and consider that God might be real. Well, the whole place went berserk. And why? Because that yes should be celebrated. When an atheist starts considering God might be real, how is that any less holy than some other yes or some other yes? Our job as a well-based ministry is to facilitate each person's next yes, regardless of how small that yes might seem, because a well-based ministry is focused on direction, not distance. A fence-based ministry goes, yeah, but how far is he from the, no, 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 no. A well-based ministry says, do you see where his shoulders are pointing? He's heading the right direction. Let's say it this way. Fences matter less when we're focused on moving towards the center. Fences matter less when we're focused on heading towards the center. Maybe we say it this way. In old communities, the whole village centered around the well. Here's my question for as we reimagine what church could be like. What if we built wells instead of fences? What if we became less obsessed with worthy and more obsessed with who wants it? Who's thirsty? Who's got that desire? Where can we see the spirit of Christ at work in somebody, whether they've crossed a certain line or not, their shoulders are pointing the right direction. See, wells and thirst represent life and provision and prosperity and abundance. Why? Because teachability, humility, responsibility, and passion lead to all good things. Let's say it this way. 
Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. He was a fence destroyer. If, if, you, if you're here and you're sort of new to the whole Jesus thing and you're like, can someone summarize Jesus in like a few sentences? Yes. Jesus' message was God loves people more than the rules. And he was there to fulfill scripture instead of simply be right about one verse. Jesus constantly told people who were not worthy that their thirst qualified them. And that is something we should replicate. Jesus is like, I know there's a rule that says you're disqualified, but your thirst requalifies you. It's like, what? Let's say it this way. Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. Let's say it this way. We don't need any fence that doesn't lead to the well. Because what we don't want is a fenceless existence. Actually, one of the ancient Hebrew definitions of hell is a boundaryless place. In other words, if you don't know what to say no to, you'll have no idea what to say yes to, right? In other words, don't, thou shalt not kill, we should keep that one, right? Don't, don't sleep with each other's spouses, that's also a good one. Don't take each other's things, that's a good one. Why? Because a world where our life, our wife, and our stuff are protected, that's a good world, right? Here's the issue, though. If fences make it more difficult to get to the well, then they miss the point. All the fences should be harnessing us in the direction of the well. It's when we put fences in front of the well like they're hurdles that becomes a problem. See, my question for us is this. As we reimagine what it means to be a Christ-centered community, can we have enough faith to be more concerned with thirst, desirability, teachability, accountability, responsibility, humility, and passion? than we are about, hey, have you done the right? Like, it's, it's, it's wait a minute, if we, if we become a well-based thing, then the fences don't matter as much. Here, here's something Jesus said in John chapter seven. Let me read this to you. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Now I can read that in Greek. I have a minor in New Testament Greek and I can tell you, I can read that and I checked it. The word translated anyone there is anyone. He's standing, he's standing in Jerusalem at the most fence-based ministry ever created. And he says, let anyone who is thirsty come after me. Can you imagine the Q&A on that one? What if they're eunuchs? Them too. People born out of wedlock. Yep. Moabites. Yep, that's me. Yep, 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 yep. What about, yep, yep, any, anyone, anyone. I'm less concerned with their worth and I'm more concerned with are they thirsty. Let anyone who thirsts come after me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water. In other words, I'm gonna give the spirit to anyone who wants it. It's about desire, teachability, humility, responsibility, and passion our world. By, by the way, that passage of scripture there took place at the Feast of Tabernacles, which by the way, just ended. The Feast of Tabernacles was like last week. Like I, I, have, a, I have a Jewish friend in Wisconsin and every year for that week, he lives in a tent in his backyard. It's in Wisconsin. It's freezing, right? All over Jerusalem for the last week, they've been living in tents. Why? Because it's important to remember where your life would be had God not interceded in your life. So what they do is they remember that there was a day that they had nowhere to go. And here's why that's important. In Deuteronomy 26, it says on that festival, you're to lift your offering and proclaim in a loud voice, my father was a wandering Aramean 
In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave. In other words, it is very important that we regularly remember where we would be had God not interjected himself into our life. And here's why that's important. If we ever lose sight of where we would be had God not touched us, then we'll lose sight of our role in their story. If we lose sight of God's role in our story, then we'll lose connection with our role in their story. And that becomes a problem. And before we know it, we look at people and we're deeming, are they worthy or are they not? Are they in or are they out? Are they clean or are they unclean? Whereas Jesus has called us, hey, remember there was a day your father was a wandering airman? Are, are, are you thirsty? Do you want it? Are you ready to say the next yes? And why this church exists is to create meaningful experiences with the divine in order to facilitate that person's next yes, regardless of how far they are from the well, we honor the direction of their shoulders and facilitate the next yes. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with for application. So let's wrestle with this with a few questions. Next slide. When is the last time I saw God do something that made me uncomfortable? Like, when's the last time you had a moment and God did something that didn't fit the rules? And you're like, I am uncomfortable. I didn't think God did that. Because if we don't have those moments often, we'll get stuck in the old wineskins. God's trying to bust us out of those old containers. It's just like, and don't, don't feel bad about it. Even Peter, like the most out there disciple of all of them, he's like, I was surprised too. The Holy Spirit filled uncircumcised Gentiles. What am I gonna say about that? I didn't think God did that, but he does, but he does. When's the last time that we tried to cage the lion only for the lion to show us it's not a good house cat, right? Right, the Bible calls Jesus a lion. And I would just say this, a lion is not a good house cat. If you try to domesticate a lion, he will tear your whole house up. A lion is best in the wild, allowed to do whatever he wants to do. Let's say it this way. Have I honored right, wrong, in, out, clean, and unclean over a hungry, thirsty paradigm? Wait a minute, you see that person? Are they teachable? Are they humble? Are they responsible? Are they passionate? We can work with that. Here's a question. Am I blaming right now? Is there anything in my life that I'm convinced is somebody else's fault? Where do I need to take some ownership for that? Uh, uh, am I teachable? Or do I live with this idea that if I haven't thought of it, it can't be right? Everything I've learned my whole life, has gotta fit in that, what? Like whoever is the smartest person in here about God, they haven't even scratched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is. We've got an infinite eternity of exploring this incredible God. Am I teachable? Maybe we can say it this way, am I flexible? Am I a flexible person? If God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I to argue? My last question that I want us to wrestle with is this. Are we building deeper wells or higher fences? Are we building deeper wells or higher fences? My brothers and sisters, here's the thing. The good-hearted folks in this room, which I'm assuming is everybody, we all wrestle with the tension of, where does my call to take the Bible seriously and my call to love the other, where, where, did, where does the tension with that meet? Here's the truth. We have to live with a revelation that God loves people more than the rules. To realize that we are called to be people who fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse. And may we shift in our Christ-centered communities from an obsession with who is worthy to an honoring of those who are thirsty. And may we be the people 
who facilitate each thirsty person's next yes, celebrating every small yes along the way and trust God to move that person closer and closer to the well. May we be the people who drift closer to the center regardless of the fence because the well matters. May we be those thirsty people. I bless you to be teachable. I bless you to be humble. I bless you to be responsible. And I bless us all to be passionate about the infinite possibilities God has for our world. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. Lord, may we be people who fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about it. I want to take a few minutes tonight. I want us to have a moment of prayer. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I thirsty? And I'm not one that would do an altar call. And we don't do altar calls during COVID anyway. But there's an altar in your heart. And you'd say, the prayer of my heart is that God would increase my thirst. And if you want in on this prayer, why don't you just get in on this? And I'm gonna pray that a grace would come. Lord, let, let this place be a dwelling place for your name, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God. And let the atmosphere of the spirit of God become manifest and make us aware that you've been with us all along. And Lord, I ask for my brothers and sisters that you would increase our thirst, increase our teachability, increase our humility, increase our responsibility, and increase our passion. Lord, I pray that you would give us a revived unction of urgency for our world. May we be well-centered instead of fence-based. Lord, increase our thirst. Just increase our thirst. Maybe you've gotten a bit stale. You own a business and you're out of ideas. Lord, I pray that ideas and energy would just rush toward us. May the world know that to all who are thirsty, let them come. Lord, why don't you pray this prayer underneath your breath? Holy Spirit, would you bring someone to my mind that I need to honor their next yes, even though it's not as far as I perceive my yes to be, but their shoulders are in the right direction. Lord, bring somebody to my mind that I need to facilitate their next yes. Lord, empower the leaders of this church to build this kind of Christ-centered community. Amen. Amen. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your evening. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection central, scriptures got bigger, not smaller. If for nothing else, you know that there's a Bible verse that says eunuchs aren't welcome. And then there's another Bible verse that says, yes, they are. May we never see the Bible as a statically appropriated document, but rather a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. God is nicer than we all think. I bless you to be deep, deep, deep well diggers. That way we don't need all the fences and may all of our fences point us toward the well. Until I see you again next time I'm here. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. Thank you for joining us today. If you were encouraged by the message and would like to hear more sermons like this, 
make sure you hit subscribe. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To experience other messages, videos and live services, head to oranahills.church and navigate to the resources tab. Thanks for listening.